you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're welcome to episode 56 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And you will recall that last week, or there thereabouts last week, it was kind of the Christmas festive period. So I think there was yeah. maybe 10 days. I know somebody gave out to me because they said, you always produce a weekly podcast. And it was about 10 days. So, pe- so people do like to listen to the fifth quarter over their Christmas break, oh, as absolutely. we've discovered well, from what, our what Twitter feed. Yeah, one what person else would do? you be with? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. absolutely. But mm. we had uh, a fascinating discussion with Mark Garrett, mm. who is now two years into his role as Director General of the Law Society. On one level, these are the best of times for the Law Society because there's loads and loads more solicitors. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, there's been an exponential growth in the number of solicitors, but that is causing other problems. Yeah, and I think the yeah, the interesting thing is just the, the small family firms, the high street small town firms that, you know, people go into for their ordinary legal representation. A lot of those are run by people who are should we say, moving into the second or the, the later part of their career and yes. they don't have people coming up to succeed them because they tend to be going into the larger commercial firms. And, and as Mark Garrett rightly pointed out, there, this is an issue that affects not just the law, it affects the, the, the medical profession. Yeah, but he, was, but he was very clear he didn't want to mm. pit one lawyer no. against yeah. another yeah. sort of mm. thing. But I mean, I think the headline that emerged from the interview mm. was one trainee only in the county of Mayo. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it, it beggars belief, actually, mm. that that is the case. And it is worrying. It means it, from a, at a societal level, yep. it is worrying. Yep. Well, anyway, today we're going to talk about the law of antiquity, sort of, kind of, mm. and the repatriation and restitution of artefacts between countries. And somebody has something and says, well, I own it. And somebody else says, no, you don't own it. I actually own it. And states say, I own it. And mm. other states say, you don't own it. And all that sort of stuff. And we have a brilliant guy here, brilliant guy. A barrister, recently qualified barrister, but he's been an archivist for a long time, an old pal of yours, Martin Bradley. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that interview. And, you know, he's going to tell us all about the Elgin marbles, for example. Yeah. And and uh, Egyptian sarcophagi and, and a lot of other issues between the two. I'm going to have to get you to say that. Egyptian what? Did I say sarcophagi? <laughs> a, a sarcophagi. A sarcophagus. Yeah, I hope a, I did. As the man yeah. says, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> but anyway, there you go. All right. Well, before we get to that, let's have a look at three cases that you've identified from the Decisis website. The first case this week concerns an appeal from the Residential Tenancies Board over the blocking of a drain. This is very curious. In a residential property by coffee granules and foodstuffs by the tenants. So obviously they were flushing everything down the sink or whatever it was. And the blockage cost €88,000 to, to free up. Wow. That, I mean, that was the evidence, yeah. The drain doctor mm. got well paid for that one. And the, the Residential Tenancies Board has a statutory maximum of 20000 So there was 88000 yeah. They can only award 20000 mm. Square that circle. Yeah. Well, th- so as you said, it's an appeal from the Residential Tenancies Board. The case is the Web Summit Services in the Residential Tenancies Board. So it's important to say that residential tenancies almost all get determined by the residential tenancies board. So even though the occupant here appears to be in a limited company, I think it was being used for their staff or for residential purposes. But what happened was that the, the landlord here found that the drain was blocked 
and it was blocked by coffee granules and foodstuffs. And generally speaking, the landlord is responsible for, for the repairs in residential tenancies, um, except where the use is what they call non-normal wear and tear. Uh, as you said, it cost 88000 to repair this particular problem, so it wasn't a small issue. The Residential Tenancies Board awarded their statutory maximum of 20000 It went on appeal to the High Court, and the High Court said that they were satisfied that the use of the drain for disposing of foodstuffs and coffee granules amounted to non-normal wear and tear and therefore upheld the determination of the Residential Tenancies Board. But they didn't get the other 68,000? No, because that's the statutory maximum. They okay. would have had to so, go, they would have had to bring yes, some kind of negligence case. Yet in. another lacuna in the law. Okay, let's move on now to criminal law. The second case today is an appeal from a murder conviction. This was a very distressing case of a stabbing of a woman on her way home from a cleaning job. Uh, how horrific is that? One of the issues concerned a telephone call she had made to her husband after the attack. The accused claimed that this should not have been admitted in evidence before the jury. Why was that? So generally speaking, the rule of hearsay is that uh, out-of-court statements shouldn't be admitted to prove the, the, the truth of their contents. An exception, which generally speaking, one comes across in when learning the, the laws of evidence, one of the exceptions to the hearsay rule is what they call a dying declaration. And this is where what arises where a person who has been killed or the victim of a homicide says something factual about the circumstances and that can be admitted in evidence. And th this is where and the, the general test is that they have a settled expectation of death. And so in this particular case, this poor woman who was um, stabbed on, on her way home in the IFSC made a phone call to her husband and told him some things about the, the murder. And in the course of the conversation said repeatedly that she thought she was dying. And um, on that, on those grounds, the, the court admitted that the statements into evidence. Very distressing. Uh, yeah. And I should say that's the Director of Public Prosecutions versus CC. And that's a decision of Ms. Justice Tara Burns. Ms. Uh, Justice Paul Burns. Paul I think, Burns. Sorry. Paul Burns. I saw um, the Burns. Okay. And, so and I think it, two Burns on the, on the and, Court of Appeal. And, and I think it's also worth saying that the reason that the CC is anonymized is that the accused was a minor at the time of the attack. Okay. So just really distressing case there. Yeah. Okay, finally, we take a look at a case where the Gardaí refused to give a gun license, having sought advice from the ballistics section in the Phoenix Park, I presume, which had emanated from this request. The applicant claimed that they had fettered their discretion, which is a, a legal term in judicial review, which you might explain, in seeking such advice. Yeah, so it, it, this is an application for a gun license. It appears to have been a slightly unusual gun that was being sought. And so the guardie who, you know, you make the application to your local Garda station. The Garda, the guardie in this case uh, obviously had concerns about the firearm in question and they sought advice from the Garda ballistics section and having received that advice decided that this was not an appropriate gun to be licensed in Ireland. So the grounds for judicial review was effectively that they had fettered their advice by going to the ballistics section and saying, well, you, you know, should we allow this gun in or not? And um, the court, not surprisingly, I think, said that this was a perfectly appropriate thing for the Gardaí to do and that the, the advice, they were not bound by the advice from the ballistics section. But it was obviously... Uh, I'm thinking of that Michael Moore scene in that movie, Bowling for Columbine, is it? Yeah. Where, where he opens an account mm -hmm. and as a, an incentive to open an account, they give him a gun. 
Do you remember in the bank? Yeah, yeah. It's a, which, 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 I just think this is crazy. If the guards say, don't give this guy a license, gun license, I mean, how can the High Court even think about trying to overturn that? I, I, th- I think the High Court didn't have to think very long. No, not very long. Okay, and that is decision. the case of Brennan versus the superintendent of the Kildare Division. And it's a, a court of appeal decision of Mr. Justice Brian O'Moore. Okay, back shortly with Martin Bradley, barrister stroke archivist. Silence in the fifth court. So we are delighted to be joined in the studio today by Martin Bradley, who um, I should admit, uh, conflict of interest. I worked with Martin several years ago when I was working as a historian and family researcher. And Martin was working as an archivist in records management in a company called Anaclan. Since then, Martin has set up his own company called Archives Ireland and has worked as an archivist and records manager as well as working for a number of museums and cultural institutions over the years. But just in the last couple of years, he has requalified as a barrister and is now practicing at the bar. So, Martin, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Thanks for having me, Mark. And we are here to talk primarily today about the issue of cultural heritage and repatriation, issues relating to the Elgin Marbles. Um, which we'll come on to in a minute. But maybe I can just ask you, after several years running your own business, working in archives and records management, uh, what induced you to change your direction and become a barrister? That's a really great question, Mark. Um, and it's one that I've asked myself on a number of occasions over the last four years. Um, I mean, I suppose the, the first point when you mentioned we've known each other for several years, I think it's closer to a quarter of a century ago that we were working together. Mm-hmm. But I suppose, you know, broadly, the, there were kind of two things which um, encouraged me, I suppose, to look at requalifying as a barrister. One of those was, I suppose, an awareness of maybe a, a lack of specific legal advice that was available to people working in, in the GLAM sector. So GLAM is an acronym for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. Which a very obviously, appropriate acronym. Well, absolutely. It's nothing but glamour, mm. as you know. Right. Um, so can you just say that again? Galleries, galleries Libraries, Archives and Museums. And Museums. Okay. The, the GLAM sector, okay. hmm. uh, as opposed to the STEM sector. Sure. So I was interested, obviously, because having worked in, in the sector for almost a quarter of a century, I felt that I suppose I had a broad understanding of of some of the issues that people working in the sector would encounter. And I wanted to be able to, I suppose, provide proper legal advice uh, and maybe fill something of a vacuum that existed. And then I suppose the other reason was was kind of the more broad uh, midlife crisis type motivation where you wonder if you're still able to study and pass exams and, and do those kinds of things. So I was actually, I was encouraged by some friends who are at the bar to pursue that route. Sure. And I was equally given dire warnings by other friends who were practicing at the bar that I was under no circumstances to do it. <laughs> yeah. I won't say which camp I fell into there. But uh, so it, so obviously, I mean, I suppose the, the work of an archivist and records manager, you were very affected by issues like freedom of information and data protection. Is that a large part of what leads companies to use the services of somebody like Archives Island? Interestingly, you know, when the freedom of information legislation first came along, there was an expectation that this would result in a massive overhaul of how records management was done within the public sector. And obviously, you know, the requirements for bodies which are scheduled under the FOI Act, which is basically anybody who receives any form of state funding, that they would produce something called a publication scheme, which was supposed mm-hmm. to contain a, a description of the classes of records that they have. And, you know, the exact wording is giving such particulars as are reasonably necessary to facilitate the exercise of the right to access. As it turned out, the, the interpretation of the particulars that are reasonably necessary 
fell somewhat short of what people were expecting. So that this kind of turned into a very broad description of the types of records that people have. There's also, you know, various exemptions within the Act in terms of the bodies providing access to the records. So for instance, if the number of records that needs to be looked at is liable to cause a substantial and unreasonable interference with or disruption of their work, they can refuse a request. And similarly, there's a bunch of exemptions for things like commercially sensitive material. So, so from, I understand from what you're saying that basically there are a lot of state bodies who might have been expected to do a really thorough overhaul of their records, but actually they haven't done so and ultimately it's turned out under the legislation they haven't needed to. Is that a, a reasonable solution? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's probably, it would be unfair to say that they haven't addressed the issues, um, but maybe the extent to which some of those areas requ were required to be addressed under the legislation maybe fell short of what people were expecting at the time. And then what about data protection? Does that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, d data protection, again, it, it's interesting in that there are specific exemptions that relate to, to archives. So obviously, you know, under the, the GDPR and the, and the 2018 Data Protection Act, um, you can make a data subject access request. Mm -hmm. But, you know, section, I think section 61 basically allows an exemption for processing of information in the public interest and specifically by archives. And similarly, you know, the ability of members of the public to make requests in relation to their personal information and to seek, you know, rectification or clarification of the reasons why that's being held and processed. There are exemptions for archiving in the public interest, which is obviously the majority of our I mean, clients. The, the impression you have on a day-to-day -day basis is that data protection is used more as an excuse not to release a record than to release a record. So, you know, whenever you hear, well, wh why isn't this available? Oh, because of data protection. I mean, is that... I, I, sometimes I think that's just used as an excuse because people haven't looked at the legislation. But is that a yeah? A, a I mean, fair summary? you know, you see things like say the 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 putative, um, National Centre for Research and Remembrance, um, mm. which is going to be basically the centre for people who've been through industrial schools, okay. orphanages, and in a lot of cases, these institutions were run by religious orders, so they were effectively contracted by the state to care for people under. Yeah, contract. But what that means is that their records are not covered under the National Archives Act because it's not specifically mentioned within the terms of the Act. Uh, and a lot of these institutions are basically, you know, refusing to to release these records on the basis that they contain personal information, citing the GDPR. There would seem to be a simple enough way of kind of rectifying that problem. Can we not amend the legislation? I mean, it seems like yes, a, a huge we... lacuna in the law. Yeah, we can. Um, and I was actually, I was working recently with the National Archives. So I, I produced a report which was an analysis of comparator jurisdictions looking at the legislation they have around record keeping. So for instance, you know, this issue cropped up in Scotland recently with effectively the same set of circumstances. But the Scottish legislation has been amended in that any third party which provides these services under contract to the state, their records are effectively state records. So this is something which could be addressed by a revision of the National Archives Act, but it, it hasn't been, you know, the, the, the Act itself dates from 1987 and the last revision was 2003, so it probably is due an overhaul. So I don't think state bodies have been remiss in responding to requests to provide the material, but I think that there was an expectation that there would be a massive overhaul in the way that records are kept within the state, and obviously that has a financial and administrative 
burden and implication, and that hasn't really come to pass. And presumably that means that in, in relation to a lot of government departments, there are records that might be available for freedom of information, but simply can't be found because they're in archives that haven't been looked at for decades. Right. And, and also that, you know, the amount of work that would be involved in looking through that number of records is viewed as being you know, yeah. disruptive to the, the, the everyday work of the organisation. Yeah. I mean, you're probably familiar, you may remember from your previous work, mm. your previous life as a historical researcher, the Land Commission records are, are one of the big ones which constantly get mentioned. Yeah. Um, but but is that, ex- I'm sorry, I'm coming in here yeah. and I'm, no, I'm, okay. I'm a complete stranger to all of this. This is fascinating. This is an education for me. But I mean, is that good enough if I say, look, I want to obtain certain records that are held by a State Department and they say, oh, you know what? We haven't got into that room in years. We don't really know what's in there. So sorry about that. We can't do this for you. Is that acceptable? I mean, it, it, it really depends on, on what it is that you're looking for. Um, I mean, in some respects, the onus is on the person requesting the information to have an idea of what the information is that they're looking for. So, you know, the sort of the idea of the broad fishing, that, right? I get that. fishing expedition yes. going, I want all records that yeah, no, relate that's to X. I mean, there have been cases, you know, for instance, with a force where they basically provided all of the records that related to the training schemes that they were running and just dumped boxes and boxes and boxes into a room, which were then gone through by journalists. And then that resulted in some of the, the news coverage that, that came out about force and its subsequent rebranding as, as Solace. So it's kind of a double-edged sword from the perspective of the, the organizations because obviously the more intellectual control you have over your material the more likely you are to be able to find things that are A, pertinent, or B. So, so Martin, I'm, I'm kind of getting from you yep. that what you're saying is that it's it's more kind of a, a, a benign obstacle, basically, rather than a kind of a deliberate attempt to conceal. It's, I mean, there is a, obviously huge practical implication for, you know, people going through all these documents because somebody on a whim says, look, can I have X? I mean, of course I understand that. And yes, I mean, I would have thought that somebody has to be pointed and specific in their request is very important and, and have reason to believe that something does exist, etc. So, so really, it's, it's, it's not like there's kind of, uh, kind of false walls being placed no. in, in, as, as impediments to people. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the word benign is, is really important here. Um, and obviously, organisations like the National Archives do have responsibility for records which are transferred to them over 30 years. And that's actually been changed to the 20-year rule now, so the burden of responsibility on them is actually greatly increased. However, not all of the bodies which transfer records to the National Archives have staff who prepare the records or transfer them across in a you know a timely manner or in the manner that it would be useful to the National Archives. So does that mean they're just they're just handing over boxes and then one day they may or may not be indexed and, and or, gone or, or in a lot of circumstances just not handing over records? Yeah. Okay, well, we'd like to move on because the the main reason we asked you to the studio today is that you wrote a piece in the Law Society Gazette in September of last year entitled Repatriation of Cultural Heritage. And it was the front cover story of the Gazette and it was very uh, entertainingly uh, um, illustrated by a picture of Angel- Angelina Jolie in her, um, her Tomb Raider uh, persona um, they somehow admitted to have a picture of the author on the front cover. I can't think why. But the central theme of this was that there are certain items that may or may not have been looted or raided um, decades, generations ago that may need to be repatriated or, or, or the term you use a lot is restitution. How does this affect Ireland? 
So in broad swathes, I mean, I suppose kind of working backwards from the most recent developments. So the most recent development was the, the Historic and Archaeological Heritage Act of 2023. So that's that, Irish legislation. That is Irish legislation, which came into, it was enacted in October of 2023. Mm. And the significant thing within that uh, piece of legislation was it allowed Ireland to accede to the UNESCO 1970 Convention which is the Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Properties. And it also allowed Ireland to accede to the UNIDWA Convention, which is the 1995 Convention on Stolen or Illegally Exported Cultural Objects. What these conventions allow, basically, is that the person who you know believes themselves to be the rightful owner of an object can request its return. Um, I'm sorry, when you say person, is well, this person, a, a person, person or a state? state? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. can be an individual or it can be mm. can be items in, in okay. state ownership. And obviously there's the, there are distinctions in terms of how it operates depending on whether it's a person. Mm. So the, the phrase restitution yeah. relates to returning an object to an individual. Repatriation relates to returning objects to okay. a state collection. Okay. And so in in practical terms, are you seeing, or whether domestically or internationally, are you seeing more claims for restitution by individuals or is it more claims like the uh, Benin bronzes and Elgin marbles by states saying these were wrongfully taken during colonial times and we think they should be returned? I mean, I, certainly a lot of what's getting popular coverage is is the repatriation issue. And, you know, you've probably seen this as still quite newsworthy. So the issue over the, the Elgin and Parthenon marbles. So these were, were taken by Lord Elgin in, I think, 1801. Yeah. under uh, a firman or permission from the, the then Ottoman sultan, because at that point Athens was under the occupation of the, yeah. the Ottoman Empire, okay. or it was part of the Ottoman Empire, yeah. depending on your viewpoint. Um, and this was used as the kind of legal justification by Elgin to strip these marbles, bring them back to Britain. And, but I mean, and it, 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 so sometimes it turns up in the in in these discussions that people don't really know what the Elgin marbles are. But I mean, these are the statues that are from the Parthenon in Athens. I mean, they are. A, they were a central stri- part of Greek they were heritage from the the fabric yeah. of the building. Yeah, yeah, uh, and from you know possibly the most iconic building in Greece and, yeah. and a key part of the sort of the Greek national identity and culture. Yeah, yeah, and and oh, in fact, what, they what, was Lord Elgin not a purchaser for value? No. <laughs> Well, he was, uh, the, the exact wording, I think, was that, hang on, let me find find this, it's quite entertaining, the, the, the legal basis he was operating off was that he had a piece of paper which said that when they wish to take away some pieces of stone with old inscriptions and figures, no opposition be made. Um, now, if you were to rely on that as a purchaser for good value or good faith acquisition, I think it would be quite difficult. And similarly, it was controversial when he brought them back to the UK. There were parliamentary debates and they were eventually purchased by the British Museum in, in 1816 under the, the British Museum Act. But they, they paid £35,000 for it. Which, to, to him or to, to his estate? Or? To, to Elgin, um, which he claimed was about one third of what it had cost him to remove them, pack them up and ship them to the okay. UK. Okay. And so, do you know what what the current state is of of the litigation? And is yeah. is that in the Court of Human Rights, or is it in the in? Well, so you know, the first point is the British Museum Act of nineteen sixty three explicitly forbids the British Museum of disposing of any of its holdings without an Act of Parliament. Under the the nineteen seventy UNESCO Convention, which the UK is is party to, the the Greek government listed the dispute in nineteen eighty three and formally requested that they be returned. 
This dragged on for years and years. In 2021, UNESCO called on the UK to enter into negotiations with Greece. Uh, they offered to mediate the dispute. The UK turned down this offer. The UK hasn't ratified the, the 1995 UNESCO convention. But, you know, it seems that things have been moving onwards. Um, so George Osborne, who's the, the chairman of the, the British Museum at the moment, has indicated that he is looking to find a solution to the problem. One of the solutions that's being put forward is that the, the marbles would be loaned to the Acropolis Museum in Greece, and in return for which things which have never been exhibited in the UK, such as the, you know, the Golden Mask of Agamemnon, mm. might have an opportunity to be seen in, okay. in the British Museum. There was a bit of a spat quite recently involving Rishi Sunak, yeah. um, who got <laughs> cross with the Greek Prime Minister uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Because he mentioned it in an interview. Because he yeah. mentioned it in an interview, yeah. but he, in, yeah. in his defence he was asked a direct question, yeah. Yeah. and Rishi thought that he shouldn't answer this question because it was part of an ongoing negotiation. Yeah. So it's still a political hot potato. Yeah. But, you know, but, but political years. rather than legal. I mean, <laughs> Well, that's the thing, yeah, yeah. Because obviously, because the UK hasn't ratified yeah. the 1995 convention okay they're not beholden to it but it's, there's it's, also a limitation it's only question. going one way though martin isn't it i mean i mean this this they can only place their head in the sand for so long i think correct on this one um and also you know you may have seen in the news recently there were other issues in the british museum where it was discovered that 1500 objects had been stolen by one of the curators yeah. sold uh, and the reason why he was able to steal and sell them was that they weren't properly inventoried or catalogued yeah. and also various pieces of Roman jewellery had had jewels removed from them and were sold on so the argument of the British Museum for years had been they are safer here in London than yeah. they are in Greece Are we whiter than white? I mean if we're pointing the finger across the Irish Sea at our, our dear friends in London I mean how, how about Ireland? Do we have anything that anybody's looking looking for? What about the Hunt Museum down in, in Limerick? Wasn't there a bit of hassle about that? I mean, the Hunt Museum is listed in Dan Hicks's book, The the British Museums, as as possessing some of the Benin bronzes. Um, the Hunt Museum previously uh, was in the news because there were suggestions that maybe some of the artworks that had been acquired by the Hunts uh, when they went on a shopping expedition in Europe after the Second World War, that the title in some of those paintings might not be Entirely clear, but I mean, they might they have been did taken conduct... from from families that have been well, deported this, to camps. Essentially, this, this is the suggestion. I mean, yeah. they did yeah. conduct an internal review, and I suppose it's also important to state that I'm not suggesting that the Hunt Museum or the Hunt family are guilty of any impropriety. They did conduct a full investigation, and they didn't find any issues there. I mean, I think probably in Ireland, the the slightly the more interesting thing, and the thing which is being addressed currently, is in relation to our ethnographic collections. So the figure, I think, was something like in, in 1860, 40% of the British army was comprised of Irish people, and the Irish regiments were predominantly sent to colonial conflicts. So particularly in places like South Africa, Natal. So huge amounts of ethnographic material was sent back to Ireland, initially to the, the Royal Dublin Society, which then gifted its collections to found the National Museum of Ireland. And a lot of those uh, materials were on display up until just post-independence. So the National Museum of Ireland was originally founded as a, an ethnographical museum. And ethnographical museums in the Victorian era were sort of, they had a semi-political basis in that they were intended to demonstrate the superiority of industrialised Western colonial yeah. society. And, you know, the materials that were displayed were often displayed out of context and they were really displayed as, as kind of 
war trophies almost. Now, post-independence in Ireland, obviously the the appetite for the display of this type of material dropped off um, and increasingly, I suppose, uh, something which followed the, the narrative of, you know, kind of Celtic history and, again, Irish, you know, uh, cultural nationalism. So you will see, say, within the, the National Museum, displays of bog bodies and Celtic art and church yes. art. And the Tara brooch and the Ardad chalice and those the, the exactly. things that are more domestic. Than, yeah. Whereas, the, mm. you know, all of these previously collected collections have, have been in storage for a long time. But, but we do still display uh, Egyptian sarcophagi um, and that, that kind of thing, which presumably, I mean, do we know whether those were purchased rather than looted? I mean, or what the, the origin of them were? Yeah, I mean, again, this, this would be a question for the registration departments of the mm. museums. So a lot of them do have very good records in relation mm. to where they were purchased or where they came from. Um, I mean, more broadly, there's an interesting question around deaccession. So a lot of people will have large collections, which they would probably be quite happy to see returned to the place that they came from because they have no real, I suppose, pressing desire to display those materials. So for instance, UCC returned an Egyptian mummy and sarcophagus to, to the state of Egypt recently because they were having to pay to store it in their basement. It was a slight embarrassment and it didn't have any real scientific or research use. So we're not talking about any great altruism here. I mean, again, <laughs> it's, it's you know, everything is a, is a mixture of different, just different impulses. Can, can, I, can I ask you, okay, this is not repatriation, but what about in our own dear Isle? You know, should we give the Derry Flan chalice back to tip, you know? Um, or what about, more importantly, and this is, this is something, and again, I'm, I'm very much an outsider here, gentlemen, so I hope I'm not, you know, uh, raising topics that, that don't merit uh, being raised in the context of this discussion. But what about Inish Boffin? Dear mm. old Inish Boffin and Trinity College retaining skulls from Inish Boffin. They're not artefacts, but, but they're, you know, culturally important, I would have yep. thought. And Inish Boffin wanted them back and they got them back. Correct. What's going on there? So, I mean, that, that was an interesting story. So effectively, that they were taken from Inish Boffin by a visiting academic from Cambridge who was conducting a study on phrenology. So obviously phrenology at the time was viewed as a sort of valid science, uh, would not be so today. Uh, for those who aren't aware, phrenology sorry, the, is the, the, the study of lumps in your skull it's, and it's measurements. The, and that yeah, thing. the measurements of the mm. sort of dimensions of the skull mm. and the shape of your head mm. with an attempt to then, I suppose, derive an understanding of, you know, your level of intelligence and development. So again, this ties in very much with this sort of 19th century idea of the cultural superiority of Western society. Mm. But he found, basically, they were in, in a ruined church. There was a pile of I think 16 or 18 skulls which had been sitting there, which he bundled into a sack, smuggled off the island, conducted phrenological analysis on, and then gifted them to Trinity College where they sat on a shelf within yeah. the, the medical department. This one is quite interesting because the people of Inishboffin obviously re requested that they be repatriated for want of a better word, even though Inishboffin isn't a nation state. It may seem like it when you visit there. but <laughs> And I think, you know, Trinity were divided on on the subject because some academics felt that well actually there was nothing to say where those skulls came from they were just a collection of skulls that were above ground it's not like they were exhumed there was no real link to any particular time period so you know from analysis they dated from i think between the 14th and 16th centuries so how they got to be sitting there on the ground was was subject for debate and again the idea was that well maybe they're 
better on a shelf in Trinity where they could be studied. Trinity put together a, a committee to look at questions of restitution and repatriation. It was their decision that they should be sent back to, to Inchboffin for burial. But I suppose within Trinity, this has this then led into further issues that the same committee is examining. For instance, the, the Berkeley Library, which is now, well, or the library formerly known as the Berkeley yeah. Library. There is a specific legal issue there, though, isn't there? When you talk about, well, by, I suppose both the, the skulls and Inishbofin and Greek uh, Egyptian sarcophagi, because in relation to human bodies, there is no property in a, in, in, in a body. But in relation to historic bodies, I think, and you, you, you go into this quite a bit in your Gazette article, there are particular issues in relation to dead bodies, presumably because they are, you know, they are considered of very important cultural significance. And that if, if one country is kind of effectively looting the, the artifacts that are derived from people's bodies. And I mean, I think we were, we were talking just before we started recording about the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford that had, certainly until recently on display, shrunken heads that were taken from, from other countries. I mean, what issues arise there in, in legal terms? Yeah, I mean, there's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People from 2007. And basically what this makes is a distinction between what we might term to be anatomical specimens. So, you know, elements of human bodies which are maintained for scientific research or historical research and things which have cultural significance to Indigenous peoples. So, for instance, they may form part of uh, a belief system. It may be related to ancestor research, but the idea is that, that you know these remains are very much part of the kind of the culture and fabric of the country, and they're specific to a place rather than you know something which which can have a life as a as a museum exhibit. So, I think the key point there is that you have to respect the wishes of the people from whom those specimens were taken. But again, as with all these things, it's nothing is cut and dried. So, for instance. Uh, you know, tattooed Maori heads are something which is kind of prevalent in a lot of museums throughout the Western world. Um, and there was apparently a, a roaring trade within New Zealand among the native peoples selling these heads. Right. So collecting okay. and selling them on to white people. And well, well, whether I mean, the tattooing happens post-mortem. You know. Again, let's look closer to home. I mean, if you go down to a pub in Athai, I think it is, you'll see the arm of the legendary Dan Donnelly from Donnelly's Hollow in the Curragh, who was hmm. heavyweight champion way back 200 years ago. Isn't that yep. it? You and, know, if you look at it. Oliver Plunkett's head with its severed ear in the uh, Cathedral in Drogheda. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, I remember as a child we'd brought on a school tour up we saw this skull and I suppose we were expected to see a proper head or something, you know, but anyway, there you, there you go. Can, can I just that... ask you, I mean, th this has been brilliant, Martin, and really, really informative and really, I, I find this really, really interesting. But I'm hearing a lot about kind of United Nations conventions, you know, yeah. and let's all do the right thing here, guys. You know, let's all sign up to this and we should all behave properly. But nothing seems to be happening, really, do you know? I mean, are we getting to the stage where, you know, the guards can come banging on your door There'll be a court order saying, give it back, you know, give it back and, and let's bring it to the boat and send it off back to wherever it, it's from in, in some other part of the world. I mean, so, so un, under the, the terms of the, the Historic and Archaeological Heritage Act, as Ireland has acceded to the Unidwark Convention, the, the circuit court in Ireland has actually been empowered to hear requests for returns of items. And obviously these, these are subject to certain time limitations and they're also subject to proper compensation being given to the person who has to return it, which is based on them being able to demonstrate that they were a purchaser in good faith. So theoretically, yes, you can bring a claim 
in court in Ireland looking for the return of an item. The key thing is it's normally it's within three years of having determined where the item is. And that would apply to both private collections and public collections. So if, if somebody's grandfather or great-great-great-grandfather had come back from South Africa with one of the artefacts you're talking about and they had it in their attic, they could, they could in theory find that they were subject to an order to return it. So in terms of the, the time limits, so it is, I believe, 50 years for an individual for a theft of an item. However, for something which is viewed <coughs> as being culturally significant or has been removed from a national monument or from an archaeological dig or that has sacred significance. There is no statute of limitations on that. However, states can define it at 75 years or longer if they wish. So within the Irish legislation, there is a clause that says that the minister can set the period. Okay, great. Well, we could obviously talk about this for a lot longer, but we've reached the end of our time. But we do have one question that we always like to ask our guests, which is, do you have any book or film that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think I actually have it with me. Um, and it's probably the, the, the best book to read on the subject of repatriation and restitution, which is a book called The British Museums um, by Dan Hicks, who's Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at Oxford. So that's brutish as opposed brutish, to British Museums. Yes. The British Museums. Okay. Play on words. And Dan is also the curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum in, in Oxford. So it's it's a very good book. It's been very divisive. Some people think that he's a raging Marxist. Uh, right. Other people think that his arguments are, are very well put together. Okay. Um, but yeah, certainly Fantastic. worth picking up. Brilliant. So Martin Bradley, thank you very much for joining us here in The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Barrister Martin Bradley, who talked to us all about repatriation of antiquities and artefacts and all that sort of stuff. And shrunken heads and Shrunken skulls. heads. Phrenology. I didn't know what that was. You seem to know. Our producer knew as well. Uh, I'm amazed. But what a fascinating interview. We have a very uh, widely read producer. Yes, very widely read producer. Well, that we know anyway, Cuddle. Absolutely. Okay, so can we say a thank you to the said Colonel uh, O'Moroyne for his assistance in putting this podcast together and a huge thank you to Lee Brennan who recorded this podcast. So from me, Mark, I'm going to say cheerio. Yeah, and for myself, Mark Tottenham. And we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.